1 Samuel 30 this morning, the first 15 verses. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely override and overtake them. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the, bank, to the brook Besor. when those who were, with, who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the, bro the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And the Egyptian said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Sherathites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And the Egyptian said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to his band. This is the word of our God. Good morning, everybody. Let's uh, start with a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to the word of the Lord. Lord, I, I agree with Rich that that hymn is just so, so deep and so true. Lord, 
it is well with my soul. The world comes and goes, things rise high for us and things come down. But Lord, through it all, we have a clear vision to where we wind up, and that is that Jesus has, has taken our sin, has welcomed us into his family. He is the elder brother, and we inherit with him. What a blessing. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for making that way possible. It would be impossible for us to do. We couldn't even approach. But, Lord, you came to us. You sought us out when we were still rebelling, and you drew us in. Thank you. And, Lord, the, the way you continue to provide for us, I just praise you for the provision that you've made so far uh, for the, the damage to the air conditioning units and, and the way that you're going to provide for repairing and replacing all of that. And Lord, it's just it's your kindness. Um, it seemed overwhelming when it first happened, but, um, but you are opening a way to, to take care of that, and we're, we're grateful. We, we thank you that you are a God who provides, who cares for us in this little warehouse surrounded by a junkyard in the middle of the desert. Lord, you're, you're so good to your people wherever they are, big church, small church, and we thank you for your provision. Lord, I want to pray again for our sister Joanne and her recovery. Lord, I pray for her physical therapy, uh, that uh, she would be working hard, even though it's going to be painful and difficult. Lord, would you sustain her through that, encourage her and be with her in those, those uh, difficult times and, and help her to make it through and, and uh, restore her, get her back home and, and on her feet again. And thank you for the way you've provided for her so far. We just ask you to continue to do more for her. Um, remind her of your love, we pray. Um, Father, we pray again for the races as they're still traveling across the U.S., heading towards Ohio. Uh, pray for safe journeys for them. And, Lord, I pray for a good landing once they get there, Lord, that their housing situation will resolve quickly. And, Father, we pray that you would lead them to a good, solid church, a church that um, needs their gifts, a church that can bless them with the gifts that they already have, a church that will continue to draw them closer to Jesus. And so be with them in, as they go. And, uh, Lord, for uh, next week for the Krumrai wedding, uh, we pray for Kayla and her boyfriend, her fiancé, um, and their life together that, that they'll begin joined together in, in marriage, an institution you started at the creation of humanity. And uh, we just pray your blessing on them and their travels and their honeymoon. Um, grateful that we get to share some of that with them here. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would help us to see, to understand, to, but most importantly, to believe what you have to say to us this morning, to trust that your promises are sure and true. And so meet us uh, in your word, we pray, Christ, in amen, amen, in amen. I don't know where that came from. That's a new one on me. Um, so this week, I, I listened to a podcast. It's a, a, it used to be a radio program. It's called The White Horse Inn. And uh, they, they talk about various topics. This week, they were talking about lament. What is lament, Christian lament? Um, but I found the introduction to it really helpful. It was very interesting because the introduction wasn't so much, it wasn't about lament and what it is. It was about trauma. And so trauma is a word that we hear. It gets thrown around a lot, and, and I think it's, it cheapens it sometimes because trauma can be uh, somebody posted something I didn't like. And that's, that's not really trauma. That's just somebody disagreed with you. Trauma has, has more of a technical meaning. It's more robust. And so to, to make it something little belittles it. And, and what real trauma is is, is much more important. Uh, the word trauma comes from the Greek word for wound. So that's, that's the idea behind trauma is something that wounds you, something that, that um, damages you. In Greek, it had to do with physical wounds. But in English, the, the word has more to do with 
more than just physical wounds. It can be emotional or spiritual or mental wounds, these scars that we bear. And according to the American Psychological Association, one half of everyone will be exposed to at least one traumatic event in their lives. Half of us will be exposed to a traumatic event in our lives. That means either you or someone close to you has suffered trauma. We, we are just going to experience it, something that goes on. So if the word is cheapened and kicked around a lot today, what, what's a better definition of it? Um, there is a, a definition that I think is more helpful. It comes from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which I did not know existed until this very day, until, well, yesterday. Um, but they have a, a pamphlet that they published in 2014 called The Concept of Trauma and Guidance for a Trauma-Informed Approach. Their definition for trauma, I think, is extremely helpful. They said individual trauma, individual trauma results from an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning uh, and mental, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual well-being. So it has, the trauma has three components to it. There's an event. Something actually happens. Or it's a series of events. I think most trauma is usually not just that, that initial bam, but it's an ongoing, recurring, negative thing that's happening in somebody's life over and over and over again. This trauma keeps coming up. It's an event. But what's, what makes it traumatic is how an individual experiences that trauma, how an individual experiences that event. To one person, somebody could be abrasive and abusive and mean, and they were just like, eh, don't connect with that. That's, you know, he's a jerk, so what? But for somebody else, that's going to hit very deeply and personally. So how does that person experience that event? That, how does that event affect them? And then the way that it becomes trauma is it has lasting effects. It goes on in your life. It, it continues to affect you. You can't move past it very easily. And so, like they said, it, it has a, a, an effect on your functioning, on your mental, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual well-being. So I think that's not a bad approach to understanding what trauma is. It's an event. It's the way you experience that event, and it has effects. It, it affects you long term. Um, it, it can be subjective because of the, uh, the experience, but it, it can be much more than that. What we're going to see this morning as we continue in David's slow approach to the throne is that David is going to experience some significant trauma in his life. But the way that the world is going to handle trauma is one way. We're going to learn something that the Christian can do as we engage trauma. Because like I said, half of us have either experienced it or we know somebody who's experienced it if we're in the other half. So it, it, this is going to land pretty close. What we're going to find is that the Christian's approach to trauma in their life is all the things that the world would normally counsel, you know, counseling and, and therapy and, and all of those things. But the Christian has another resource to, to deal with trauma, and that is strength from the Lord. So that's what we're going to see happen with David today. So remember the story where we're at. Um, David and Saul split ways, and we said from that point on, we're heading towards Saul's death and David's ascension. But they don't come together. Their paths won't cross again. And so our author has been moving back and forth between their stories. So we had David fleeing to the Philistines. He was so uh, frightened for his own life that he goes to the Philistines. And then that story is interrupted because we get Saul going to the witch of Endor, looking for answers. 
And then last week we saw David marching into battle with the Philistines. They're going to invade Israel and he's going to go with them. But in the end, he's rejected and is told to go home. So that's where our story picks up is David and his men have left Aphek and they're heading south again. They're heading back and they came to Ziklag. That's a 30 mile march. This is a couple of days worth of travel. And they get to Ziklag, their hometown, on the third day, and what they find is the Amalekites had raided it. The Amalekites had come in and stolen everything and burned what was left. Now, our author gives us a hint. He gives us a peek. He says, they killed no one but carried them off and went their way. David didn't know that at that point. The only clue he had was there were no dead bodies there. There was just everything burnt. But he didn't know where they were or what condition they were in or what was going on. And so David and his men came to the city. They found it burned with fire, their wives, sons, and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised up their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. They have experienced actual, real, no kidding trauma. But it gets worse. David's two wives were taken captive, and great, David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. Look at David's situation, where he's at. Imagine he, you're, you're in his position. He comes home, and everything is leveled. It's all burned down. Imagine pulling up to your house one day, and it's a pile of ashes. Everything you've ever had, all your memories, all your treasures, all the things that you found comfortable, all the things that you found reassuring, the, the tie to your past, the hopes in your future, in a, in a pile on the ground. It wasn't just David's house, it was the whole city was gone. His wife and his wives and his children are taken. He doesn't know where they are. He's cut off from his family. Those he loves are in danger, and he doesn't know where they are or what's happened. He is emotionally crushed by this, as any of us would be. But for David, it's even worse because he was essentially like the mayor of Ziklag. He was the commander, like the, the king of Ziklag. And what he decided to do was he decided to go with the Philistines and take all the armed men from the city and go north and meet at Aphek. He left nobody in the city to defend it. The fact that the city is razed, it is burned to the ground, that's on his shoulders as well. And he looks at that, and that's adding to his grief and his sorrow. And then he looks to his men, these mighty men of battle, these, these men who have fought many uh, battles with him. David has killed his tens of thousands, and, and a lot of these folks have been with him in that. He looks to his strong men, and they're weeping. They're not just crying, they are collapsing to the ground in tears, overwhelmed with grief at what they've lost. And he sees their families are in the same condition. They don't know where they are. They're all taken. And David feels the burden of that. That's his fault, his responsibility, because he was in command. And he led them away. And it gets even worse. Not only are his men deeply grieved by what happened, they're discussing whether they should execute him or not. They are so, the men he would go to war with are now saying, should we stone him because of what he's done? Has he transgressed that bad? This is what I think the whatever society or association or administration would say, this is traumatic. He's just suffered the loss of being rejected by the army he was supposed to go with, of being turned away by the commander, and now he comes back and it's even 10,000 times worse because he suffered the loss of everything. He has nothing. So what is he supposed to do? How is he supposed to respond? He's, he's, he may wind up dead in the next couple of minutes if he doesn't do something. 
we are never going to be in David's situation. We are never going to be in command. We're never going to be in charge of this many people, but we can suffer loss like that. We can suffer loss personally, loss of health, loss of relationship, loss of a loved one, loss of a family. We can suffer similar trauma, maybe not to this extent, maybe not to this, this huge amount, but the reality is in life, it's just going to happen. Kyle warned us this morning, we have to suffer with Christ. That's the nature of what it's like to live in a fallen and a broken world, even as God's people. So when we ask the question, what does David do? We're not going to say, well, David did this and, and I will never be in that situation because I'm not David. But David is, don't forget, a man after God's own heart. He is a man that God has sealed with his Holy Spirit, who has given him promises. And so how does a man in that position respond? That's how we need to respond. And so what does David do? It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He was able to look beyond himself. He was able to look beyond what had happened. David did everything he thought was right. He marched into battle. He took the men with him. And what did he get? Tremendous loss. David is at the end of himself. I don't trust me anymore. I, I, I am not going to be able to figure this out. The, the men are about to stone me. I, I have no more answers. The answers I have given so far have gotten me into big trouble. Now what do I do? And where does David turn but to the Lord? He, he strengthens himself not in making his own decisions, not in his own abilities. He doesn't believe in himself. He's strengthening himself in the Lord. And this, where does this come from? Where does he get this idea? Don't forget back in chapter 23, when the last time he met his good friend, Jonathan, Jonathan came and went to David and strengthened his hand in God. So with the question that we have is when we face trauma, when we face such significant, overwhelming loss, when we are burdened like this, how do we strengthen ourselves in God? Where do we find that for us? What does it look like to strengthen yourself in God? Well, we're not going to get a really neat three-point outline, and here's the steps that you have to take. What we have to do is, is look a little bit further forward and say, what did Jonathan do? How did David respond in this? If he strengthened himself in the Lord, and the next thing he does is probably that thing. It's probably that strengthening. And so that's what's going on. The next thing that says is, and David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Remember why Abiathar is here. His father was slaughtered. All the priests were killed by Saul uh, at Nob because he helped David. Ahimelech took the, um, I mean, um, Abiathar took the ephod, that's that breastplate that the priests wore, and escaped to David. All the other priests are gone. Abiathar has suffered complete loss as well. He's had that trauma. So when David says, bring me the ephod, what he's saying is, I'm going to ask the Lord. I'm seeking the Lord's guidance. I have come up with all the answers that I have, and every single one of them's failed. I'm going to God. God, what should I do? So he brings the ephod, and he inquires of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, pursue, you surely overtake, and you will surely rescue. Great news. This is what he's been given. This is the, the, the way he does it. So how do we then strengthen our hand in God? How do we, how do we find our strength in the Lord? Um, we don't have the ephod. 
it would be probably incorrect to, to use something like that. The very last time, the ephod, remember, had the um, urim and the thummim in it. And it appears that you would cast them like lots. You would roll them and it would give you answers. And they were binary answers, yes or no, true or false. It, it appears that he used the, the umum, urim and the thummim. I can never say those, the, the lots. Uh, to determine what God's answer was. And he got not just yes, but overwhelming yes. So do, why don't we do that? Let's cast lots. The last time we see in the entire story of the scripture, lots being cast was actually before the day of Pentecost. It was the apostles saying, we have to replace Judas. We got these two guys, let's cast lots. That's it. We don't ever do that again. There is no procedure in the rest of the New Testament telling us how to cast lots. Why? Because we've been given the Holy Spirit. So then how would we approach the Lord? How would we um, come to these things? What things are we going to hold on to to say, Lord, what should I do in this situation? I want to trust you. Well, what Jonathan did for David in chapter 23 was he came to him and he strengthened his hand in the Lord. And remember hand at that time, we said that was his power, his strength, what he was going to do. He strengthened his hand in the Lord. And the very next thing Jonathan tells him is, I know for a fact you're going to rule in Israel. I know that you're going to be the king. What Jonathan did was he reminded David of God's promises. He brought it to mind again. I know you're in trouble. I know my father is opposed to you, but the Lord has promised you're going to sit on the throne. So when we look at these things, when we wind up in this traumatic situation, when we suffer great loss, what we have to do is remember the promises of God. He has made a promise. He is working all things together for your good. He is working all things. How many things is all things? All is all things, including the trauma, including the difficulty, including the opposition, including all of those things. He's working them together for your good. You have his promises. The other thing that I think helps David with this is really an eschatology, right? He, he is told there is a kingdom coming. The kingdom that's here now is unjust. It's unright. It, it is a vicious and a, it's an opposing kingdom. This kingdom that exists now slaughters priests. This kingdom that is now is trying to persecute David, the, the, the man after God's own heart. This is what the kingdom looks like now. There is a kingdom coming, David, when righteous will be there. There is a kingdom coming when the right king will be on the throne. So David can reassure himself, not just the promises, but the eschatological promises that God is going to bring a kingdom of righteousness. It's going to happen. It's going to come. The other benefit that David had that we share with him is God put his spirit on David and it never departed from him. As a member of the new covenant, the sign and seal of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. You have been given the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean it's a shield against any trauma. That doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to you. What it means is you have this down payment, this guarantee for those eschatological promises. The Holy Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. You're his. He hasn't forgotten you. Now, as I said, we don't have, we don't cast lots to determine God's will. That's over. So what do we do? How do we determine God's will? Well, what we've been given is we've been given God's word. And when I say God's word, I don't mean just the Old Testament. I don't mean just the law. I don't mean just the prophets. I mean the whole Bible, the New Testament included, the whole canon of scripture has been given to us. We have it all. And so these are the appointed means that God has given to communicate to us. In the Old Covenant, it was the Urim and the Thummim. 
In the new covenant, he's given us his word. He's spoken most clearly through his word. We have it all. And so that's where we go. We look to the scriptures and we ask, God, what should I do? And you don't get law. You don't get answers. Yes, go buy that car. No, don't do that. What you get is wisdom. You get broader principles. We have a, a, a way to understand it. He's also not only just given us his word, he's given us each other. So it's not just me and my Bible. That's not bad, by the way. That's used pejoratively sometimes. But me and my Bible is not bad. But he hasn't given you just you and your Bible. He's given you this community of believers who are experiencing similar things. They're happening, similar things are happening to them or have happened to them in the past. And so you can go to your Bible and you can look, and then you can go to somebody who's experienced something similar but different and say, how did the Lord respond for you? How did that work in your life? What did God do for you? And you hear another tale from somebody else. Or you have somebody in the church who knows the scriptures better who's been in the faith longer, who's studied more deeply, and you can go to them and say, how do I understand this? I don't know what to do. Well, let's consult the word. And God has given us teachers. He's given us each other. He's given us all of that. He's given us more than just this community, too. There are Christians in other churches that you can talk to and hear from and listen to. The next one, I got to caveat a little bit. He's given us people well beyond our church. He's given us people who write books who speak at conferences, who, who can talk about things that are coming from a, a different concept than what we have. But you have to be careful because Jesus warned us there are plenty of false teachers out there. And so we, we need to have a little bit of care and, and take care when we pick up a book and say, I want to understand this. I found this book. Is this book good? Is it, is it solid? Is it going to help me grow? Is it recommended by people I trust? This, this YouTube video, it, it seems plausible. Is it well-received? Is it known to be reliable? Is it helpful? So we have others outside the church, people who are contributing today. But not only that, we have 2,000 years worth of people contributing. C.S. Lewis said, go read old books. People have experienced things in completely different contexts. They've lived in times that were far more traumatic than what we've lived in. How did they process this? How did they endure persecution? How did they endure famines and starvations and those kind of things? Read those folks too. Read those other ones. Now in the New Testament, I have to be fair here, there's also a category of people called prophets. And, and in, the, in the New Testament, there are prophets. But here's the problem with prophets. There were prophets in David's day too, weren't there? Did he have a prophet walk up and tell him what to do? He did earlier. Gad came and said, hey, go back to Judah. But that was it. He hasn't heard from a prophet again. The thing with prophets is we can't control that. We don't have access. You can't just say, this person is now a prophet and I'm going to listen to them. As a matter of fact, the New Testament tells us, test these folks if somebody claims to be a prophet. So you have to be careful. You have to be cautious with that. And what are you going to test them with? scriptures. So let's go to the scriptures first and foremost. If a prophet shows up, that's great. We'll test him. We'll see what happens, but don't expect him. God doesn't always send a prophet. Sometimes he gives you this. So these are the ways that we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord. We, we do it in the word of God. We do it through prayer, through community, through listening to each other, through helping and serving each other. That's how we, how we strengthen ourselves in the Lord. That's where it goes. So look at David's immediate response. How does this go for him? Um, what happens next is, is it says, so David set out. He, he gets the word from the Lord. He gets 
God's direct word, and his response is he sets out 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Besor, and those who were left behind stayed. He kind of assumes we already know what's going on. What do you mean left behind? What's going on? Next sentence. Day, um, David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind because they were too exhausted to cross the brook of Besor. So great, David has strengthened his hand in the Lord. He's ready to go out and engage. Don't forget what happened. These people just marched 30 miles north. They mustered with a bunch of people. They turned around and they marched 30 miles south again. These guys are exhausted. They have been on the move for weeks. And so when they come back, some of them just can't press on. They can't make it. And so with the first thing that God does, when, when David has sought the Lord, he says, I'm going to strengthen myself in the Lord. And God's first response is, okay, one-third of your men are down. It sounds very Gideon, doesn't it? There are too many people. I can't deliver you with this many people. Let's start slimming that number down to something I can, I can deal with. That's something that will show. So David's response, it doesn't look good at this point. It doesn't look like an answer. Lord, I just lost a third of my army. But David continues on. He pressed on. He, he kept going. And not only did he come back exhausted, when he got to Ziklag, that's when he should have been able to rearm, resupply, take a rest, get some food. All of that's gone. So it's not looking good for David to, to continue on, is it? I mean, would you go if you had no supplies and lost a third of your army? That's suicide mission. Don't do that. David strengthened himself in David. No, David strengthened himself in the Lord. He's going to press on. He's going to continue. And so he obeys. There, there's a psalm that I think helps answer this. It's Psalm 20, which is called the Psalm of David. And, and part of it goes like this. Now I know the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand upright. I think that answers this situation. I'm not trusting in horses and chariots. I'm not trusting in the metal that I can strap to my side and go. I'm not trusting in the strength of my army. I'm trusting in the Lord. David has strengthened himself in the Lord, and that's exactly what he needed. What David is looking at the world like is he's not looking at it through strictly materialistic checklist, what's my inventory approach. He's looking at the world as if it is supernatural, as if it is possible with these diminished odds, these diminished resources to come against a superior army, and I still believe I can win because I believe the world is more than just what I can see. He strengthened himself in the Lord. We need to live as if supernatural reality is true. We need to live as if God's word and his promises actually can happen instead of just looking at the world as it is, the material way. This, this is real, and this is tangible, and this is what's happening, but it's not the full answer. And that's what David did. That's what it means to strengthen yourself in the Lord, is to go beyond just the naturalist, just the materialist answer, and to think supernaturally and act that way too. So here's what happens. As they marched for a few days, they found an Egyptian in an open country, and they brought him to David. Now, I don't, they don't know he's Egyptian yet. They don't know anything about him. But they found somebody wandering in an open field, and they bring him to David. And David commands, not off with his head, but give him bread, and he ate. And give him water to drink, and he drank. And they give him some figs and some raisins. Those have got a lot of carbohydrates. That'll re-energize him. This man is exhausted. 
And what they find is that the man hasn't eaten or drank in three days. Huh? Why? What, why would you not do that? Well, it's because he fell sick three days ago. Three days of the march back to Ziklag is about the time this man fell sick. Isn't it lucky? This goes back to remember our, our, our talk last week about the uh, pachinko machine and all of these random things that kind of happen. And isn't it fortunate it just played out that way? Isn't it lucky? Isn't it just fortunate that this Egyptian was part of the raiding party? He could tell the story of all the raids they had done. But he wasn't a willing participant. He wasn't a leader in it. He was a slave. Isn't it fortunate that he could be there and still be on the outside? And isn't it just coincidental that he happened to get sick after the raid was over so he couldn't go with the rest of the party? He, he lay ill for three days. And isn't it just amazing that for laying there for three days with no food or drink, being ill, whatever sickness he had, he didn't die. Isn't it just coincidental that he wouldn't die? And then he happens to be wandering in the very field where David's men show up, and, and they just happen to catch him. And, and instead of deciding that he's one of the enemy and, and attacking him, they take him and they feed him, and they give him strength. And, and isn't it fortunate that the, he was then able to tell David exactly what had happened? We raided here, we raided here, we raided here, we burned Ziklag, we took everybody captive, and I was left behind because I'm sick. Isn't that just fortunate? This is when you strengthen yourself in the Lord, this is how the Lord sometimes answers with these coincidences, these things that just kind of happen to line up. There's one more thing that the, the Egyptian slave says that gives David hope. He says, David says, will you lead me to this company? Will you take me to where they are? You know where they were going, you know what they've done, will you take me there? And the slave says, swear to me by God, that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you to this band. Swear to God that you won't kill me. I'm a runaway slave. I deserve to die. Swear that you won't kill me, but also swear that you won't turn me back over to my master. In other words, the Amalekites take slaves. I think David just got some hope. Maybe our people have survived. Maybe we can deliver them. Maybe that's what God meant when he said, overtake and rescue. Maybe that's what he's saying. He's now been given a glimmer of hope because this slave is, is saying, please don't turn me back over to my master. When we back up and look at the whole picture, David has had enough of his own decisions. It, it hasn't gone well for him. The Disney gospel is not working for David. Just believe in yourself. The Barbie gospel, you can do anything. Yeah, I can. I've seen what I'm capable of. It's not pretty. I don't want to rely on me anymore. He trusts in the Lord, and the Lord just happens to have saved this Egyptian man and just happens to have him come across, and now he knows what's going to happen. Next week, we'll find out what the response is, what they do. But for us, when we step into this situation, when we look at this situation, what we're told is strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. That's where we find our strength. That's where we find our hope. How do we do that? Well, we can look to people. We can look to others. We look to David and say, how did David do that? What did Paul say? Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Christ is the better David. He's the David who suffered this even more so and, and was still victorious because he trusted in the Lord, because he, he waited on God's deliverance, because he was risen from the dead. So we look to that. We say, how did, how did godly people do this? How do they respond to trauma? How do we get through this? How do we navigate trauma? How do we, how do we deal with significant loss? 
Well, we do it by strengthening ourselves not in what the material world can provide and what can it give and where can it put us, but instead to say, Lord, you have given us great and precious promises. And I'm going to put my trust in that. I'm going to trust. I know what, the, I peeked at the end of the book. I know how this ends. Jesus comes back. Righteousness will reign on this earth. And that's, that's how I deal with the trauma, the loss that I've had now is I'll lose it all for Christ because I gain so much more. And, and I think that's where David's at. That's what David is processing. That's how he's, he's going through this. And so I think the best way that I can apply this sermon, the best way that I can bring this home is with a song. We were trying to get Matthew Smith to come here, and that just didn't work out. But here's a song by Matthew Smith, and I think it is the application for our sermon. Go ahead and play it. you 
I'm supposed to talk after that. <laughs> um, hey God, let's call that the, the closing song, all right? <laughs> Whew, um, yeah. There's a day coming when we'll laugh, when we'll smile. It's not there yet. The road there, we're going to lose. We're going we're gonna to have ups and downs, successes and failures, but ultimately... The Lord himself will dry our tears.